If you'll reach for your Bibles with me as we transition into the reading of God's Word in preparation for Pastor Bruce's sermon. To James chapter 2, the book of James chapter 2, I'll be starting in verse 14 and reading through the end of the chapter as we continue in the series of James. If you need a pew Bible, please, you should be able to find one in front of you. You can find today's reading on page 1200, I believe, 1200. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, reading through the end of the chapter. Follow along as I read. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Father, we come this morning, Lord. We thank you that you are the victory through your son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross who took our sin, who took our shame, and rose again three days later. Father, we look forward to his return in great anticipation. Father, until that day, Lord, I ask that you just speak to us this morning, open our hearts, convict us, encourage us. Lord, work in us, humble us. Be with Brother Bruce as he brings today's message. And it's all in your name, for your glory I pray. Amen. In a world of fake... People long for real. We want the real thing. We, we're interested in the genuine article. In fact, we will even pay more money for something that's authentic. In fact, advertisers know this, and so it seems if you put the word real in front of something, it mysteriously, magically sells more, such as real leather versus the cheap bonded leather or real gold as opposed to fool's gold. And so companies use the word real to market their products, such as these real companies that are actually called, I found them on, online, you can go to them, it's called real coffee, real health products, or beauty for real, or this one I like a lot, the real meat company that sells food for cats and dogs. There's even a website that tells you how to distinguish between Real coffee and fake coffee. So now you can buy real coffee from the Keep It Real Coffee Company. There is even the realreal.com, 
where you can buy and sell real designer accessories, clothes, and shoes, not the fake stuff. People want real. And the reason people want real is because we want something that works. And the reason most people don't pay attention most of the time to infomercials is because most people know that those products are cheap and they don't work overtime. And so before spending money on something, we want to know the answer to one question. Does it work? Especially when it comes to products related to skin care and weight loss and energy boosters. But when you find that one thing that works, oh, you are sold. And you will tell everybody about it. In fact, I found something that works is a very powerful testimony. And the same is true when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the reason why our mission here at LifeBridge is to bridge the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ is because we actually really do believe that true and lasting life change happens when people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And anything short of that is useless. It doesn't work. And this is what James is telling us here in chapter 2. Real faith works. And those works demonstrate and even prove we have real faith. That is the big idea that James is trying to communicate to us here in chapter 2. Real faith works, and those works demonstrate and prove we have real faith. Now, you need to remember that James is very concerned that we possess, that we have embraced, that we have real faith. Not the kind of faith that merely says so. We learned last Sunday that real faith is, it's more than what you say. It's more than what you believe. And so James says, don't just tell me that you have real faith. James says, show me your faith. Real faith in Jesus, in other words. It is, it's demonstrated not by what we say we believe, but rather by how we live out what we say we believe. Saying you have faith without works to back it up is, is nothing more than hot air. After all, James tells us, he reminds us, that even the demons believe and shudder. And so James says, listen, that kind of faith, such faith cannot say. Why? For that kind of faith is dead. Now, the reason that James can say this so confidently is because he knows that real faith works. And those works demonstrate, improve real faith. This is what James is going to show us in the rest of chapter 2 here. To say it another way, real faith, in other words, is proven by our works. And it is based on the saving work in Jesus Christ. Charles Swindoll says it this way, faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can always see their effects. That's the point James is making here in chapter 2. Real faith demonstrates itself in our actions, or what he calls our works. But at this point, some of you might be asking already in your minds, is that not a contradiction of the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
After all, I thought we were saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And I would ask you to hold that thought here for a moment. While James has an awful lot to say about works, his primary emphasis in the book of James, though, is faith. What is real faith? What does it look like? And his answer is, here in chapter 2, real faith works. And those works demonstrate, those works even prove we really do have real faith. Now, at the same time, if you know anything about church history, then you know the battle cry of the Reformation was justification by faith alone, which was based upon what Paul wrote in the book of Romans, which leads us to this question here. Is there a contradiction between James and the Apostle Paul? Now, on the surface, it certainly appears so, but in reality, what I hope to show you here for just briefly is that there is no contradiction at all. On the surface, it seems there is a contradiction between James and Paul regarding salvation and works, and especially when you put two passages of Scripture side by side. For example, what James says in 2.24 and what Paul writes in Romans 3.28. Look what it Look what James writes here. I think I have this in your notes or you look it up in your Bibles. James says in 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then you compare that with what Paul writes in Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So which is it? And the answer is both. James and Paul do not contradict one another. Rather, they complement one another. And so we might even think of it this way. Both James and Paul are simply addressing two sides of the very same coin. Paul's focus is the basis or or cause of salvation, while James' focus is the evidence or result of salvation. We might think of it this way. Paul emphasizes the root of our salvation, while James emphasizes the fruit of salvation. One author, Kent Hughes, he writes, Paul is focusing on faith, which leads to salvation, and James is focusing on faith after our salvation. Charles Swindoll, quoting him again, says, Paul explains how one gains entrance into salvation, and James examines how one gives evidence of that salvation. And so, in other words, we might summarize it this way. Paul is teaching us here how to be justified before God, who can see our faith. And James here is teaching us how to be justified before people who cannot see faith, but they can clearly see what? The works of our faith. So both Paul and James agree with one another. They agree that we are certainly, we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But faith that saves is never alone. That is, it shows itself by our works. And those works prove that our faith is real. And so both Paul and James are writing about the exact same gospel, and yet they are writing from different vantage points, and they are addressing different problems in the churches that they are writing to. David Platt gives this perspective, and I quote, he says, I don't picture James and Paul standing toe-to-toe with each other with contrary understandings of the gospel. Instead, they are standing back-to-back with each other, fighting two different enemies, 
and together defending a unified understanding of the gospel. In other words, Paul is fighting against this false idea that we can somehow earn our salvation by our works. That's what Paul's addressing. That's what Paul is fighting against. While James is fighting against an an idea of an easy believism that simply reduces our salvation to what you say you believe. So which battle are we fighting even today? Well, again, the answer is both. In fact, today, many so-called Christians, whether they admit it or not, whether they realize it or not, think that they can somehow work their way to God. At the same time, many others believe this false idea that since we are saved by grace through faith, and that means that our works are irrelevant to God and obedience doesn't matter. I can live any way I want. In James, though, he gives us this picture of a, of a glorious gospel, of a beautiful gospel that is received by faith, but this faith is more than what we say. It's more than what we say we believe even. This is a faith, James says, that ought to result in works. It should result in obedience. Why? Because it's a faith that shows itself by our works. In the example that James holds up before us is Abraham. And he does so with good reason. Abraham was not just a man of faith. Abraham is the epitome of faith. In fact, if you can prove a point from Abraham, you have won the argument. He's the trump card. But what is so interesting about this is James uses Abraham as an example of what he's saying And then when you turn over to Paul in the book of Romans, guess who he uses as an example? Abraham. You can read about it in Romans chapter 4, the first three, four, five verses there. Abraham, in other words, is the model for both James and Paul. He is the model of faith. Why? Because real faith works. Faith works to first of all, justify us before God. But what James is going to show is that faith also works to justify us before people. So let's look at it. Number one, works are indispensable to verify our faith. That's the first point James is making here, that works are indispensable to verify faith. Remember, James is contrasting here in chapter 2 real faith with dead faith, or what we might call as false faith. We, we see that in verse 17. We looked at it last Sunday. And we saw last Sunday that there were some people in the churches he was writing to that were claiming to have faith, but they had no works to back it up. And thus, their so-called say-so faith was no different than the faith of demons who believe in God and shudder. And so once again... Just like James began in verse 14 with this rhetorical question, a challenge meant to challenge us, to challenge what kind of faith we really have, James now, here in verse 20, begins with another question. He confronts us, he challenges us with a question here. Look at it in your Bibles. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, just as he said prior, it's 
It's a faith that cannot save. Now, this word foolish, interesting word, it means empty or hollow, suggesting that a foolish person is one who is empty-headed. And James, in essence, is basically saying that that we, we are fools if we think that real faith can exist without any works. Why would he say that? Notice this in your notes. Because in the eyes of those around us, our works do what? They prove or they verify the reality of our faith. And without such visible verification, our faith appears to be useless. Now, with this question and the terminology of foolish, James may be rather short on tact at this point in his his argument here in chapter 2. But he certainly has our attention, and he actually goes on to answer his own question by giving us two examples who verified their faith by their works. We already mentioned one example, the first of which is Abraham. The second example is Rahab. Now, Abraham was this revered patriarch of the faith. Most of you have probably heard of Abraham. Rahab, on the other other hand, was this redeemed prostitute by faith. And these two polar opposites James is going to use to illustrate for us that faith works and that those works verify or actually prove the reality of one's faith. So let's look at these examples, the first of which is this. The works of Abraham proved his faith was real when he offered his son. Now, again, Abraham was the most powerful example James could have chosen as this revered man of faith, especially for the Jewish people that he's writing to. In fact, he's even called the the friend of God. You cannot get much closer to God with that kind of title. You cannot be more revered or that becomes our goal as the friend of God. And so look what James says in verses 21 through 23. He asks another again question. James loves questions. And he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, And again, James wants to show us something. He wants us to see by the works of Abraham. So he even verbalizes it here. He writes it. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So what James is doing here, he's actually taking us back in history. He's taking us back to two key events in the life of Abraham, and he's going to show us how those connect one are connected. So you go to Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. Those are the two places in Scripture. And these two events in the life of Abraham are connected. Genesis 15 is where we read about Abraham's faith. And then a few chapters later in Genesis 22, we read about how Abraham then proved his faith that we just read about in Genesis 15. So, verse 21, what James does, he refers to this time when God tested Abraham's faith. And how did God test Abraham's faith? He asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, on an altar. Now, humanly speaking, 
Does that make any sense? No, absolutely not. In fact, it, what God is asking Abraham to do seemed to contradict everything that God had just told Abraham that he was going to do for Abraham. You go even further back in Genesis chapter 12, and there, that is when God called Abraham, and God promised that he, Abraham, was going to be the father of this great nation that would bless the world. And so everything hinged on having a line of descendants. But at this point in Abraham's life, he is rather old. In fact, he's not just old, he's very old. And his wife was barren, past the age of having and giving birth. And so having just one son, let alone a dynasty, was going to be a challenge for Abraham and Sarah. Time passed. In fact, 10 years after God's initial promise of a son, God now tells Abraham again, comes to him and tells him in Genesis 15, verse 1, he says to Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. And Abraham replies back in verse 2 and basically says this, God, if you are my great reward, why am I still waiting for a son that you promised me back in Genesis 12? Where's, where's the fulfillment of the promise? And so God does something that is great. He takes Abraham outside of his tent. He tells Abraham to look up into the sky, to look at the stars. And he said to Abraham, as he's looking up at the stars in verse 5, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And it says in verse 6, and Abraham believed the Lord. And it and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, that's interesting because that is the very first time the word believe was used in the scriptures. In other words, Abraham trusted and believed in God. He rested everything on what God said to him. And he kept resting on God in faith. And what did God do? God counted it to him. As righteousness. That is now, at that moment, Abraham was declared righteous before God through his faith, not his works. But James is much more interested in what took place, not in Genesis 15, but what took place over here in Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham then proved his faith that he verbalized, in Genesis 15. God kept his promise, by the way. Most of you know the story. Isaac was born. But when Isaac was just a boy, God appeared to Abraham once again and said to him in Genesis 22, verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So imagine the horror that Abraham felt. And yet, he obeyed God. Abraham made the journey. He gathered the wood. He bound his son. He laid him on the altar. He raised his hand with a knife to sacrifice his son. And that's when God said in verse 12, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God 
seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And it's with that radical act of obedience that Abraham's faith was now justified, or we might even say vindicated. That is, it was now demonstrated for all the world to see. In other words, Abraham's obedience proved his faith was real. It demonstrated that his faith was more than just words that he said in Genesis 15. And so now James says here in verse 22, you see the faith. What faith? What do we see? We see it in Genesis 22 in his radical act of obedience. You see that his faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. In other words, Abraham's faith was seen in his works of obedience. Abraham's works confirmed or or vindicated the reality of his faith. The kind of faith that had been counted to him as righteousness years before in Genesis 15 was now proven real in this act of obedience here in Genesis 22. And this is why James can say what he says in verse 24. (laughs) Look at it. He says, you see that a person is justified or vindicated by works and not just by faith alone. That's James' whole point here in chapter 2. His point here is not that you get a right relationship with God by working really hard for it. That is not his point. James is saying that when we have real faith, It will change you. It will transform you. It will produce good works in your life for people to see. Might ask the question this way. How can you tell if someone is justified? How do you know if they are truly considered righteous by God? And the answer is not by their mere profession of faith. Not according to James. According to James, it is by the practice of their faith. You see, the real evidence is how our faith moves us to obey God. Remember, Paul shows us that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And James is showing us here that that faith never remains alone. It is seen in works of obedience. Now, I hope you also understand at the same time, James is not saying works of perfect obedience or perfect works. Because that is never the case with us, is it? We all know we're, there are times in our spiritual journey when we are on a roller coaster of that obedience. And we're going to sin. And when we do, though, because we have real faith, we now are convicted by that sin. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. Again, a reality that proves our faith is real, and it convicts us, and we respond to that conviction by crying out to God for his forgiveness and receiving it and allowing him to cleanse us again so that we might be, like Abraham, the friends of God. But we also have a second example that James gives us here. And that is the works of Rahab. 
And the works of Rahab also proved her faith was real when she protected the spies. Now, the contrast between Abraham and Rahab could not be more stark. And I think this is intentional by James because it shows us that, listen to me, anyone can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of one's background, regardless of one's social standing, regardless of one's ethnicity. It does not matter whether you are Abraham or whether you are Rahab. Listen, Abraham was this Jewish patriarch. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. And yet they both illustrate the very same point. Real faith is demonstrated by works. Look what James says of Rahab in verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, if you want the story of Rahab, you need to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Joshua, specifically Joshua chapter 2. And there, Joshua 2 records the story of Rahab protecting or hiding the spies of Israel in the city of Jericho. Rahab demonstrated her faith when when she received these spies and hid the spies who came to check out the city of Jericho for Joshua before Israel attacked the city as part of his conquest of the promised land. Her actions with the spies aligned her with the mission of God, with the mission of the Israelites, And it actually put her very life at risk with her own people. And yet she doesn't because she has faith in God. In fact, listen to what she says to the spies in Joshua chapter 2. Or you can turn there for yourself and follow along. As I read in Joshua 2 verses 9 through 11. Where Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage fell because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So while Rahab's works were certainly very different than Abraham's works, they both had the very same effect. They proved that they had real faith in God. And in this case, in Rahab's case, her works proved that she had real faith in the very God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Her actions flowed from her faith in God. Listen to me. Rahab Rahab would have never hid these spies had she not put her faith in God. In fact, she would have perished among the city of Jericho had she not acted upon her faith. But her works verified that she was a true believer with real faith. And that's why you can now jump way ahead into the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 31, where it says of Rahab, listen to it, by faith the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. This is the central point that James is making. Works are indispensable 
to verify that we indeed have real faith. And his concluding point, notice at number two, is that works are indispensable to vibrant faith. Notice his conclusion in verse 26 that James makes. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, as you've already figured out, James loves to ask questions. James loves to use illustrations and examples. And here he is using another illustration to make his point. This time he uses the example of the body and the spirit. And he basically says a body without a spirit is dead. And so James is connecting this to faith in works. So here's his concluding argument if you're taking notes. A faith without works is as dead as a body without a spirit. Now, as a pastor, and having conducted many, many, many funerals over the years, I have seen my fair share of dead bodies. And the undertaker, or more modern term, the mortician, usually does a pretty good job of making the body look as presentable as possible. In other words, to make the body look as though that it is merely resting its eyes. But for all the makeup that's used, there is no mistaking that is a dead body. It's motionless. It's cold. And the fingernails are already changing colors. And it's this image of lifelessness that James uses now to hammer home his concluding points. And that is, a faith without works is as dead as a body without a spirit. In other words, without works, faith is no more alive than a dead body that is awaiting the grave. And no amount of careful presentation can change that reality. Now, to say it positively, the flip side of what James says negatively in verse 26, we could say it this way, a faith with works is active, and it is meant to work in real life. Going back to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, that chapter is known as the hall of faith of Old Testament saints. And what's interesting is that these Old Testament saints not only had faith in God, but they also demonstrated their faith in real life. It was active faith. And that's why it would be accurate to also call Hebrews 11 not just the hall of faith, but we could also say it is the hall of works. For example... Let me just read a little bit of Hebrews 11 here for you. And as I read, I want you to hear the faith, but also hear the works that is connected as a result of their faith. Hebrews 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel does what? Offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Verse 7, by faith, Noah does what? Hear his works. Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
So we hear his faith, and we now see the works that flow from it. Verses 8 and 9, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Verses 24 and 25, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 29, by faith, the people, that is the people of Israel, crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. Verse 31, we already read this. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And now listen to what it says in verses 32 and 38. These are the nameless saints. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some, these are the nameless ones, were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others, again nameless, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Let me ask you, what kind of people are described this way? People who had real faith and then acted accordingly. People who who didn't just believe with their and say so, but then they proved it by obeying so. So it's no wonder then that right on the heels of this chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, you go to Hebrews chapter 12 and it begins with what? This call for now us, all of the saints in Jesus Christ, to, to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Listen, you know what that is in James' terminology? That is works. We are called to live out the race set before us, to, to work it out, to live it out. That's our works while looking to Jesus. That's our faith. And so even the author of Hebrews agrees with James here. And so, yes, salvation is through faith alone. We are not saved through our works. Please hear that. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith works in real life. That is James' point here with the book of James. And those works verify that you and I really do indeed have real faith. Now that brings us back to Abraham, Rahab, and you. And when you consider Abraham and Rahab in your own life, here are two takeaways to evaluate. First of all, it's to examine your own heart. Do you have real faith like 
Abraham and Rahab. And then the second takeaway is to be encouraged by all this. Be encouraged by the very fact that you can verify your faith. You can be reassured that you have real faith by your works of obedience. Not perfect works, but progressively obeying God. You are motivated. You have a desire to follow the Lord in obedience, just like Abraham and Rahab. Now, with that in mind, let us kind of step back from all of this. Let's kind of see the the bigger picture of all of this and see the beauty of another gospel truth. And that is, we, we are justified, that is, we are declared righteous in God's sight, listen to me, by works. What? Yes, by the works of Jesus Christ. It is his work on the cross that saves us. It's his work that brings us into a right relationship with God. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon put it. Remember, sinner, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that is the instrument It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not to your hope, but to Christ, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. And if you do that, 10,000 devils cannot throw you down. In other words, Spurgeon is saying, look to Jesus Christ as the author and finisher of our faith. Look to his person and his works and his resurrection. He is the object of our faith, for it is by his works on the cross that we are justified. He's been resurrected again in resurrection power so that now by faith in him and by faith in his finished work, we are now declared righteous in God's sight. And it's the works that we do now as a result of our faith in Jesus' work that vindicates us. In other words, it declares that we indeed belong to Jesus Christ. And it declares it to the whole world. It declares it to yourself. It's where the assurance of your salvation comes from. It comes as you obey and you follow Jesus Christ. In other words, in the words of James, your works. Look to your works. It should follow your faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises of the gospel. And we thank you that the gospel is ultimately not about what we do for you, but what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Help us to examine our hearts. Help us to see whether we have real faith in Jesus Christ that is demonstrated by life change. Let us not be deceived by a false faith or a dead faith that doesn't save, to be, but to be assured that we have real faith that works in real life. And now as we come to the Lord's table, may we come with our eyes on Jesus and his finished saving work on the cross. May we come receiving the bread and the juice 
with hearts full of faith and love for Jesus. And so as we eat the bread and we drink the juice, may we do so as believers who are friends of God who have been justified in your sight by faith in your Son. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord by putting your faith and trust in Him for your salvation, and then identifying with Him in baptism, in committing to his body and membership of a local church, whether it's this church or another church, then we invite you to participate in communion, to come to the Lord's table. If you're not yet a Christ follower, that is, you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then we invite you to simply remain seated and to watch what the church does. And when you watch, I pray you will see a a picture through the blood of the juice that it represents and the bread as it represents the body of Christ, you will see a picture of God's love for you, his sacrifice on the cross, and, and in that, his invitation for you to come to him in saving faith to receive the salvation that he offers you. The bread and juice, as we just said, represent the body and blood of Jesus when he died on the cross. And it reminds us over and over again who our Lord is, what he has done for us and is doing for us and will yet do for us when he returns because that is what we are looking forward to. So as the music begins to play, feel free to stand and walk toward one of the four tables here in the auditorium to participate. And you may take the bread and the cup back to your seat to eat and drink and to offer a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord.